the cannabis industry is evolving at a radical pace, progressing toward the green peak. Each week, join Richard Zwicky, a cannabis visionary and entrepreneur, as he interviews experts from around the globe to discuss updates and evolutions in the world of cannabis. Let's make that climb together up the, the green, green peak. peak with your host, Richard Zwicky. Hi, everybody. I'm Richard Zwicky with The Green Peak. And today joining us is Ryan Douglas, who was the former master grower of Canopy Growth uh, Tweed and uh, has just launched and authored a book on the uh, cannabis space called From Seed to Success, How to Launch a Great Cannabis Cultivation Business in Record Time. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it was. Uh, thank you. It um, was interesting, your book. I, you know, I've read a little bit... Uh, around it and was quite interested in your discussion about you know, it uh, can be done in a record time, but also that, you know, a lot of uh, entrepreneurs make some strong missteps, which will delay them. Why don't you give us a little bit synopsis of where you think that is and the hypothesis? Sure. So, so two things. The reason that I, I specify that it's important coming to market quickly is that over the next year or two, you're going to see, especially in these in these new states that implement uh, adult use cannabis, is that the companies that come to market quickly are going to have a lot of customers immediately. So, yep. so the majority of growers take quite a bit of time to ramp up capacity and especially new companies take a lot of time to come to market. So those companies that can come to market quickly and penetrate the market and have product to offer, there's typically little competition, but a lot of demand. So there's kind of the timing piece. But but the reason I wrote the book is that in my experience consulting with um, commercial cannabis operators, when they invite me to their production site to have a look at a problem, and I begin the process of troubleshooting the issue, it's very seldom a technical uh, growing issue like the wrong kind of lights or the wrong kind of fertilizer. Right. It's almost always related to uh, decisions that were made early on in the planning process. And so that's really uh, the, the key to this book is it's, it's a, a guidebook that takes anybody from any industry through the process of planning and designing and launching their book with a specific focus on doing it relatively quickly. Yeah, no, and that's that's absolutely correct. I think speed to market is something a lot of people don't understand that as new markets, you know, open up has just happened in the States for the last elections. The faster you can get to market, the bigger the opportunity. And it's not a matter of having the most product. It's being there first and selling it out and growing from there. I fundamentally agree with that. Um, and it is, a you know, it's something which people have made horrible mistakes around where they've built facilities that don't need or that don't suit the the customer demand after. That's incredibly frustrating. And, it, and it's embarrassing for the companies because oftentimes <clears throat> these folks will raise, you know, $10 million or more, and it's a very high, pro, high profile company, but they overcomplicate the process. And oftentimes uh, I've seen companies really the, the cultivation program implodes as a result of overcomplicating the process. So that means they had, they, they realize a number of, uh, crop failures and you know it's it really drags out the time before they even come to market to, to sell anything at all so you're absolutely right yeah so you know parts of the issues you're dealing with in the book uh you know they really range right down to the very start the, the acquisition of the cannabis cultivation licenses and uh i know you know i've built a i built an operation in Colombia, and uh a lot of people were running around flipping the licenses which was insane 
and very few actually executed on building out a facility. What are the you know what are the tips you give to people who are looking to to acquire the license? So that's it's interesting that you mentioned Columbia because that's that's an interesting case study. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have you have some of the the very first um, license recipients in Colombia were able to uh, sell their 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 business to some of the biggest global global players in the industry. And so, you know, this, we're talking about anywhere from seven or eight million to up to, you know, 60 million. And so naturally that, that got everyone's attention. And so what we saw here in Colombia was hundreds of, hundreds of groups applying for licenses. And really all they, all they had was a piece of paper and a plot of land with a dream that, that, that they would sell it to a really big company and make millions. And so yep. a few companies did that, but, you know, 99% of them didn't. So... So if, yeah, if you're and some looking, licenses flip three or four times in a year, right? So yeah, it was, yeah, exactly. uh, there was a bit of insanity there. So, so when you, when we talk about what you look for as an investor or as someone that's looking to acquire a business, we really want to avoid that situation where mm-hmm. you're basically just buying a paper license in a plot of land in the middle of nowhere, especially when there's literally dozens or hundreds of other similar situations. Right. So, so having a license in hand can expedite by a few months, the process for companies that want to jumpstart things. But if the piece of land associated with that license is, is in the middle of the country and there's no access to water or not very much access, and there's no electrical infrastructure anywhere nearby Mm -hmm. in places, especially like Columbia, uh, mounting that kind of infrastructure, that kind of work takes a long time in a massive investment. And so it's it's actually, it would be more productive to start the process from scratch, identify the ideal situation for growing cannabis, and then apply for a license that way. So it, just to say that just because there's a license for sale and a piece of land that goes with it, uh, investors or owners that are looking to acquire these businesses really need to look at what it is they're buying. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, there's also a bit of a balance there where, you know, are there going to be more licenses issued at a certain point? If there's a finite number, you've got a a risk there as well. And the application process in some places is so long, you're you're kind of stuck. You want to execute, but you have to wait a year to do anything. Exactly. And in the case of Columbia, um, there was a pause in the program. So Mm -hmm. initially, you're right. You don't know how many licenses they will issue for or for how long. And then out of nowhere, uh, they could just put the brakes on the on the program for six months. And then there's just so many unknowns. And everybody's stuck. Absolutely. But, you know, you mentioned the U.S. and all the states that are uh, opening up now. And, you know, as that happens, of course, depending on the state, they've got to make some choices about indoor versus outdoor versus greenhouse and so on. How do you walk people through that? So, uh, you know, indoor growing is the most expensive way to establish a cultivation business and it has the most it's the most expensive way to operate it mm-hmm. um, but just because a state legalizes the cultivation of cannabis it doesn't mean that growing conditions are ideal for that crop mm-hmm. so as an example my home state is maine and okay. there's a reason why there's not a citrus industry in maine there's <laughs> right and there's so, no coffee in washington state either but starbucks <laughs> managed to survive <laughs> exactly so think about this we could actually have a citrus industry in maine we would need to build these large production facilities and supply the kind of heat and light 
that citrus plants need to grow. But the cost would be exorbitant and we wouldn't be able to make up that money at the retail level. So it makes more sense for growers in Florida to grow the crop where where the region is ideal for growing citrus and then ship it up to Maine and we sell it in our grocery store. And that makes sense. So the difference with cannabis, especially in the U.S., is that um, if we're selling anything with THC, it has to be grown and produced within the state that's selling it, right? So mm-hmm. so we don't have the luxury of, um, so for example, we look at some states like Florida, which typically is hot and sunny, but also very humid. Or we look at a state like Mississippi that just recently voted for medical cannabis. That's, that tends to be a very humid state. So just because it's legal, it doesn't mean that's an ideal situation to mount an outdoor or greenhouse facility. So in those areas, really people are their hands are tied because indoor growing gives them the most control over the environment so yes um so you could you could air condition or you could dramatically dehumidify a greenhouse environment but it would just be enormously just incredibly expensive to do so but mm-hmm. if you have if you're speaking with uh, growers that are in southern california arizona new mexico now we're talking about regions of the country that are ideal for cannabis because you not only have warm temperatures Uh, a lot of sunlight but you also have relatively dry conditions throughout the year so when you ask me uh, between indoor growing greenhouse growing and outdoor growing what do i recommend to clients on the one hand we look at what's practical but on the other hand you know we're we're tied our hands are tied state to state with how we can grow and that's that's the same when i get requests around looking at that Uh there's no one size fits all and that's people think well you know there has to be a solution that everybody accepts and it just isn't there. We have to take a break, but I want to come back more on this topic after the break with Ryan Douglas and I'm Richard Zwicky. The Green Peak will climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. Elevate your every day with that Shuggies feeling with the sweet taste of Shuggies. Add a cup of Shuggies to your morning coffee Ah, how sweet it is. Shuggies infuses cannabis and cane sugar to make it the perfect sweetener with benefits. Make your happy hour happier with a dunk of Shuggies in your drink. Order your Shuggies now at S-H-O-O-G-I-E-S dot com or find it in dispensaries throughout California. Whenever you crave a little sweet, pick up Shuggies, the sweet, sweet take-anywhere treat. Climbing our way up, up, up to the Cannabis Summit of Success. Cannabis Radio is back with more of the Green Peak. And we're back on the Green Peak with Brian Douglas. And Brian, um, one of the topics we were talking about just before the break was, you know, making that decision between indoor, outdoor and greenhouse. And of course, Shadehouse also comes into play in some markets. Um, And, you know, there isn't one size fits all, but depending on the market you're trying to serve, you do have to meet standards. And it's, you know, some people think you can't reach a certain standard in a outdoor grow or a greenhouse or anything else. How do you address that? So uh, what I like to um, um, suggest to clients is that, yeah, let's look at the final product. So if we if we're selling dried flour in a dispensary setting where the client is walking in and looking at dozens of different of options uh, under a glass case, then visual appeal really is a big part of the retail decision. And so um, if you've got uh, you know a high THC variety, 
that's got a really unique uh, unique mix of terpenes and it's being sold in a dispensary under a glass case then you're going to be able to charge really a premium for that product so as a result growing indoors uh, could be justified the cost of building and operating an indoor environment uh, could be justified but if if you're primarily growing for um, extracted product or isolate uh, we need to keep in mind that the the end consumer never sees the flower Mm-hmm. And so, so we can we can create really nice uh, extract product from an imperfect uh, flower, and so um, if we look at uh, greenhouse and outdoor growing, we have much less control over the environment, but visually uh, unappealing flower still has its active ingredient inside inside of the flower that we can pull out of it. So what I like to tell groups when they ask me, should I grow indoor or outdoor? I mean, consider that most dispensary sales are dried flower, meaning that 50% mm-hmm. is everything else. So maybe one way to kind of hedge your bets is to grow indoors for the dried flower that's going to be sold in the dispensary. But then for everything you plan on extracting or isolating, greenhouse or even outdoor, depending on where you are in the U.S., makes a lot more sense. Oh, absolutely. And you know, that decision also ties into something I think you identify in your book as being one of the most important decisions, which is your head grower. And, you know, identifying and recruiting the right head grower is, is key to success. What are your thoughts on that? And what, you know, how do you tell people this is the right match for you? No, that's an excellent question. And it's, in my opinion, probably the most, uh, most important decision when it comes to launching a cultivation business, because you make your money from selling what it is you grow. And in my experience, what I find in the cannabis industry is that a lot of companies are hiring for cannabis knowledge, but not necessarily commercial plant production experience. And so, so what happens is that if you hire someone that knows a lot about cannabis or is a a passionate cannabis consumer, or even grows a little bit on their own, um, you get someone that knows a lot about the plant, but when it comes to managing a, a commercial facility or managing a team of 20 or more people or creating a production schedule with a lot of moving parts and sticking with that production schedule, uh, a lot of uh, kind of cannabis experts or aficionados just don't have those skills. And so what happens is that the company learns at the same rate that the grower learns. And so that learning curve typically is long is and pretty expensive and the company foots the bill. So I say if you're going to raise 10 or 15 or $20 million for a production facility, you really need to um, find the right head grower and be willing to pay as much as you can for that individual because arguably it's the one person in that organization that can influence the outcome of, of the success of your business. So um, when, when companies ask me how to find that person, how to identify that the ideal head grower, I suggest that you look for someone that has at least 10 years of experience in commercial plant production, and it doesn't necessarily have to be cannabis. Mm-hmm. So my background, actually, uh, even prior to touching cannabis on a commercial scale, I was a commercial greenhouse grower of ornamental crops and edible crops. And, you know, doing that for a decade and a half, that was really the best kind of training and foundation I could have had to prepare me to grow cannabis on a commercial scale because growing flowers and vegetables in a controlled agricultural environment, um, 90% of those concepts and techniques transfer directly to cannabis. And so for um, a lot of these companies that are starting up, especially if they want to go big immediately, you know, I, I, I say look to traditional horticulture and pull someone from a, a commercial greenhouse background that has been growing crops for 10 years because they already know how to manage production, how to, how to 
um, plan production, how to manage people, how to manage facilities. And those skills are almost as important as um, specific cannabis knowledge. No, absolutely. And I mean, uh, that's great you mentioned the word horticulturalist because that's something which I'm shocked how many outfits overlook. And it's, you know, the cannabis growing knowledge is important. Um, and a great grower, head grower with domain expertise is phenomenal in terms of the early days of the operation, especially to disseminate that information. But the horticulturist understands how to run the operation. And, you know, um, we've got some and they have, you know, strong flower background. Cannabis is, you know, is a plant like any other. It's got some specificity regarding it. But at the end of the day, it's a plant. Therefore, there's fundamentals that apply. You just have to learn what are the idiosyncrasies. And if you skip that, you're, I think, digging yourself a huge hole. Exactly. And so I'm, I'm constantly shocked when I begin working with a client um, and we start troubleshooting issues or talk about the cultivation program. And I ask the head grower pretty basic questions in terms of, for example, leachate testing, or I ask to see their records, their day-to-day -day production records, and they don't have the records or they ask me, what is leachate? So these, mm -hmm. are, these are good questions. Mm -hmm. They're important questions, but these mm -hmm. are these are fundamental questions that entry-level growers should be learning at the beginning of the, at the beginning of their career, not not the first month they've been hired to manage a, an expensive cultivation facility. Yeah, and you know, uh, there's a lot of growers. They they put out phenomenal product, but they're used to working with small spaces. And if you're building a facility today and you're looking at, you know, 10, 50, 100, or more thousand square feet. You need a different skill set than you needed when you were growing a couple of rooms. Right. And in, in, in my experience, it's easier to train a commercial greenhouse grower of flowers or vegetables how to grow cannabis than it is to teach a, a small time grower of cannabis how to manage a commercial production facility. Absolutely. Now, how do you find the, uh, you know, the differentiation in a grower to an agronomist with regards to breeding proprietary genetics? The difference between a grower and an agronomist? Yeah, in terms of the knowledge base and being able to quickly understand how to breed, you know, to, to not just breed proprietary genetics, but also to tune the right plant to the right conditions where you exist, because the same plant will perform differently in different regions. Yeah, so, so I mean, breeding is, is a very um, specialized practice. And if we're talking about startups, I, I typically really steer my clients away from any kind of breeding projects for a number of reasons. Um, so uh, it's, it's a long process and it's kind of like an R&D project. Mm -hmm. So neither of those, uh, neither of those are, are really appropriate for a startup because startups want to launch rapidly, come to market rapidly with the product. Mm -hmm. And so if you're engaged in a project that's really research and development that could drag out a minimum 18 months, but more likely years. Yeah, it's more likely. Of, <laughs> right. So it's sucking attention and energy and money and resources from the startup to really concentrate on this process. So uh, you, uh, I, I say leave the breeding up to the experts. One, because we already have a gazillion different cannabis varieties available. And, and so I bet, so refining these varieties takes a while, but it uh, takes less time than breeding your own varieties. So I would look to the existing varieties and it's trialing them and refining them in order to find something that is appropriate for commercial plant production. But in the instance that you really do want to breed, 
I would hire a company to do that for you, outsource a company to do that for you, because you eliminate really accidental pollination. Uh, you really allow your team to focus just on plant production. And you really, you really um, put this specialized process in the hands of a company that really concentrates only on genetics and breeding, whereas your cultivation business should really only focus on uh, flower production. And I think you've touched on exactly there. You're only going to win by focusing and you can't focus everywhere. And if your business is based on production, you can't also be a breeding uh, facility in the early days. Exactly. That's a much more developed operation. Exactly. Yeah, it's not really not appropriate for startups in my experience. Yeah. So we have to take another break, but we'll be back again with Ryan Douglas, who is the author of the recently released book, From Seed to Success, How to Launch a Great Cannabis Cultivation Business in Record Time. The Green Peak will climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. Hey, take a look at this. They're selling smart pots. <laughs> they have pot that can make you smart? Where is it? Not that kind of pot. Smart pots are the best aeration container to grow your plants. Check this out. This is the original fabric container for faster producing, healthier plants. They're made with a superior fabric that delivers high yields. Plus, smart pots are reusable and sustainable, so you can use them over and over again, no matter if you use them indoor or outdoor. That's very smart, but how good are they for the environment? Smart pots are BPA free and lead free, so you'll always be able to ensure a pure, clean grow, and they're 100% made in the U.S. Over 28 million smart pots have already been sold, so it seems like a smart investment. Look for smart pots in close to 2,000 garden centers throughout North America and ask for the original fabric container. Find a store near you or order yours online at smartpots.com. Climbing our way up, up, up to the Cannabis Summit of Success. Cannabis Radio is back with more of the Green Peak. We're back on the Green Peak with Ryan Douglas. And Ryan, you know, in this last segment, you know, we've talked about, you know, the grower, the genetics, the licenses, everything else. But now you're ready to get going. And one of the first things you have to do is, you know, you've decided you're going to go indoor or greenhouse or anything else. You've got to basically build your facility and understand how you're going to drive the costs down to make money over time. And, uh, you know, your first crop is going to be a lot more expensive than your fifth. How do you explain to people to approach it? And also, what sort of timeline do you expect and give them as a framework for how long it'll be before they can expect to see an optimized cost structure? Well, that's an excellent question. So, uh, so when, I, when I work with startups, typically, and we talk about expected yields and timelines, uh, the first full year of cultivation we, we really, I, I like to lowball the number. Mm -hmm. So um, we kind of uh, set uh, realistic expectations for everyone because if you come out of the gate and you make these really lofty promises to everyone from uh, the regulators to investors, inevitably because it's a startup, there's gonna be a lot of hiccups, uh, challenges, challenges you can't really foresee and it's gonna directly affect production. So <clears throat> for startups, I tell folks to anticipate uh, roughly 30 grams of dried, plow, dried flour per square foot of flowering space. Okay. And so that's kind of a minimum. But within uh, during the second year, certainly by the third year of production, we should anticipate doubling that number. And you should really hold your grower and your cultivation team to that standard, that, that level of production, because it's realistic and it's expected. Uh -huh. But in terms of <clears throat> in terms of driving down the cost, we can only go so low. 
right? So absolutely. So um, from the get-go, we can look at ways of of how we can minimize production costs through things like automation or maybe more efficient lighting uh, equipment. But maybe even before that, we need to look at the market we're entering because if we're entering someplace where cannabis is basically a commodity, uh, it's really difficult to to make a successful business when there's already a ton of price pressure on what it is you're about to grow. So that's why in the in the first couple of chapters of my book, I talk about how to how to identify really if this is a, a good business venture to get into, how to look at the pros and cons and kind of assess the market and the opportunities. Because if, if you're hopping into um, and a market where they've been growing for years, or if you've got a ton of pressure from the caregiver market, it can be very difficult for cultivation businesses to be successful. So I guess um, my one suggestion is, is from the, from the get go establish realistic timelines and yield expectations. Uh, but at the same time, look at the most efficient way that you can drive costs down through technology or automation. But then the third one, probably the biggest one, is look at the market you're going into and what does it look like for the next couple of years realistically because those first few years in really hot markets can be the most lucrative. And ideally, uh, investors and business owners can make all their money back in those first couple of years in addition to a profit. And then if there is price pressure or increased competition, even if you just close the front door and walk away, uh, everyone has already really done very well. Yep. No, absolutely. And, you know, I think one other uh, factor in when you're explaining to people what they should expect for yields is also the time of year they're growing. Because if you're plant, you know, the angle of the sun and everything else, if you're in a, in a greenhouse situation, it's going to affect your the performance of your plants. Indoor, you'll have uniformity, but from a uh, perspective where you use any natural light, you're going to get a higher production in the summer months than you will in the winter months even in a greenhouse with some lights uh, supplementing. Yeah, yeah, and we also want to look at uh, how many crop turns. So outdoors, you're going to get fewer crop turns than in an indoor facility where you could push five or six uh, uh-huh. flower cycles, depending on how you establish the cultivation program. Well, and depending on the varietal you use, whether you harvest eight or 10 weeks. Yeah, exactly. Right. So there's a, a lot of factors to consider into that. And so, you know, when you're, you're, you've got the book that's uh, just published and we'll ask you to give the domain where people should go to get a copy, but you also offer consulting out to the industry as a whole. Um, where do you see most people, you know, need to start? And is your book a good step for, you know, I'm thinking of getting involved. There's some things I need to know and it's really okay, here's a lot of information so you can start figuring out where your knowledge gaps are. Um, how, how do you like to approach people? Yeah, so it was written specifically for uh, individuals or entrepreneurs from other industries. So it's pretty straightforward language and I really break it down simply uh, chapter by chapter, step by step, what we want to consider if you're going to get into this business and really the considerations you should give if you're going to do so. So you don't have to be a cannabis grower, you don't even have to be in horticulture to launch a successful cultivation business. But if you are going to, there's a a number of factors that you need to keep in mind everything from the market you're going to enter to how much money you need to who are the key players you need to hire to run this thing if you're not a grower yourself. So yeah, it's really, it's written for anyone that's interested to get in the industry, but not necessarily uh, cannabis experts. Perfect. And for people who want to buy from seed to success, where should they go? 
So right now it's available on Amazon, both the paperback and the ebook. And in a few weeks, mm -hmm. I'll have a, a merchant account on my website, and I'll also be selling it through my website as well. And the domain for your site is DouglasCultivation.com. Fantastic. Well, thanks for uh, joining us today, Ryan. We do have to end, but I'd like to thank our listeners for listening as well. I'm Richard's Wiki with the Green Peak, and we'll speak to you again next week. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.